Hello, and welcome to the Original Jurisdiction Podcast. I'm your host, David Latt, author of a Substack newsletter about law and the legal profession also named Original Jurisdiction, which you can read and subscribe to by going to davidlatt.substack.com. You're listening to the fourth episode of this podcast, which airs every other Wednesday. Today, I'm honored to be joined by one of the nation's most celebrated, successful, and significant litigators, Roberta Robbie Kaplan, founding partner of Kaplan, Hecker, and Fink. She is most famous for winning United States v. Windsor, the landmark case in which the Supreme Court held unconstitutional a key provision of the Defense of Marriage Act, paving the way for nationwide marriage equality a few years later. But she has worked on many other fascinating cases over the course of her career, including two pending cases against Donald Trump, in which she deposed the former president, twice in the past month. Robbie was born in Cleveland and grew up in Ohio. After graduating from Harvard College, magna cum laude, and Columbia Law School, Robbie clerked for Judge Mark Wolf of the District of Massachusetts and the late Chief Judge Judith Kay of the New York Court of Appeals, the state's highest court. Robbie practiced for more than two decades at the major law firm of Paul Weiss, where she built a thriving commercial and pro bono practice, including her big win in Windsor. In 2017, Robbie left Paul Weiss to launch Kaplan, Hecker, and Fink, one of the nation's top trial boutiques, known for handling both complex commercial and white-collar cases and landmark public interest matters. One of the first such cases filed by Kaplan Hecker was Signs v. Kessler, a high-profile lawsuit under the Ku Klux Klan Act of 1871 against 24 neo-Nazi and white supremacist leaders responsible for organizing the racial and religious-based violence in Charlottesville in August 2017. That case went to trial, and a year ago this month, the jury awarded a total of more than $25 million to Robbie's clients. In our conversation, Robbie and I talked about her various Trump cases, how she knew she was destined for a legal career from a very young age, two qualities that have made her so successful as a lawyer, how Kaplan Hecker has managed to be so financially successful while also doing so much public interest work, and her vision for the firm's future. Without further ado, here's my interview of Roberta Robbie Kaplan. So thanks so much for joining me, Robbie. It's really an honor to have you. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here. So to start with what's in the news, and I feel like you're always in the news, but what can you tell us about your latest high-profile case, namely uh, Gene Carroll's lawsuit against the former president, Donald Trump? I know that you recently deposed him. Is there anything you can say either about the deposition specifically or about the litigation more generally? Sure. So we actually have two litigations that are very active against Donald Trump, and I actually deposed him in both on two successive weeks. So it was a relatively exhausting period for me. Uh, but I literally went to Mar-a-Lago two weeks in a row to depose him. That's about all I can say about it. Okay. <laughs> in terms of the depositions themselves. But in terms of the cases, it's very interesting. The E. Jean case which you asked about is on the fastest track. Right now, a trial is scheduled to happen on February 6th. Right now, we have one case against Donald Trump for the defamatory statements he made in June 2019. That case is currently certified to the D.C. Court of Appeals as to the question of whether when he made those statements, he was acting within the scope of his employment as president. Sounds like kind of a crazy question, but that's the question. And the D.C. Court of Appeals, I believe, 
recognizing the need for speed here, has scheduled that case on a very, very expedited schedule with oral arguments to be on January 10th. So I think it's entirely possible that we have a ruling from the D.C. Court of Appeals before the trial, before Judge Kaplan starts. Even if that's not true, however, we have a second case that we've told everyone in the world, including Judge Kaplan and Trump's lawyers, that we intend to file on November 24th, which is the first day we can file it. And that is a case directly for battery, which is the common law cause of action by Eugene against Donald Trump based on a new law that was passed in New York called the Adult Survivors Act, which basically gives a pattern on the Child Victims Act. And it gives people who were uh, survivors of rape that happened a long time ago, basically a free one-year period to bring claims, notwithstanding statutes of limitations. So that case we're definitely bringing on November 24th. And I don't think anyone will be surprised to learn that we probably will add to that case some new defamatory statements <laughs> that Donald Trump made on True Social against our client. Again, none of which are subject to any Westfall Act issue at all because he wasn't president when he made them. So big picture, I think it's highly likely, particularly given the judge we have, Judge Kaplan, no relation, that we will go to trial on all or at least some of those claims in February. Wow. And the new case shouldn't really delay anything because it's basically the exact same facts. As we told the court, the only thing that's different about the new case is the damages theory. So we will have different experts presenting different, you know, you obviously have different damages for being raped than you do for defamation. But that's really it. Everything else has already been done and discovery, fact discovery is closed. And I see very little reason for any additional fact discovery again, because the facts are totally overlapping. So what are the two depositions? What was the difference between the two depots? Okay, so the first deposition, which happened the week before, was in our fraud case. So before Judge Schofield in the SDNY, we have a nationwide class action on behalf of people who invested, and I'm using the word invested <laughs> in quotes, in a business opportunity, I'm using business opportunity, <laughs> that Donald Trump endorsed and heavily promoted before he was president known as ACN, or American Communications Network. It's a multi-level marketing scheme. I don't think even they deny that, in which people are paid $500 or $1,000 to become part of this opportunity. Then the goal is to sell video phones. The idea of selling video phones when Skype and other software was already heavily in use, not really the smartest idea in the world. But when I say <laughs> video phones, I mean big, like standard-looking video phones, like I haven't seen since I was a young associate, probably. <laughs> and the only way to make money as part of this multi-level marketing scheme is to recruit other people in. You don't mm. make money from selling the phones. You make money from bringing other people in, which is the classic hallmark of a multi-level marketing scheme. Trump was paid a lot of money, at least $11 million or so from this entity over a period of years. He went to conventions, really, where these people were recruited and he had huge crowds going nuts for him. They kind of look like his conventions now, honestly. <laughs> and he said it was the greatest investment he's ever heard of. He did tons of due <laughs> diligence. He knew it was a great company, great business opportunity. People think I do this for the money, but I just like being here. I gave you a sense of kind of the statements he made. And we, as you can imagine, alleged that those were all fraudulent and that they were untrue and he knew them to be untrue. <laughs> that case, too, fact discovery is closed. 
Okay. And there are a couple of exceptions to the magistrate judge order, but it's essentially closed. But in that case, given how much bigger the scope is, we are about to go into expert discovery and then class certification. So that case okay. is behind the Eugene Carroll case for those reasons. Okay. Although okay. we're very eager to try it before the next presidential campaign, for sure. Oh, interesting. Okay. Because we don't want to lose our defendant. No, <laughs> indeed. No, totally, totally. So to rewind a little bit, you know, as I know from having read your wonderful memoir, Then Comes Marriage, you knew from an early age that you wanted to be a lawyer. What can you tell us about your childhood or your upbringing that might have shed light on your future career or that shaped your career choice as a lawyer? So when I was a kid, I liked to talk a lot. I still do. And there's this famous story in my family. I spent a lot of time with my maternal grandmother, who was a very wise, very, very smart person. And there's a famous story that when my uncle was in the Peace Corps in India at the time, and there are a series of letters between my mom, my grandmother, and my uncle from India. And in those letters, my well, we still have copies. My grandmother is talking about how I just keep talking all the time <laughs> and how at one point she said to me, Robbie, you know, I love you, but can you just be quiet for like three minutes? Can you stop for three minutes? And I said something like, no, grandma, I can't. I just can't help myself. I love to talk. <laughs> and at a certain point, pretty young age, because I like to read, I realized if you're a lawyer, or at least I thought, you got paid to talk. And I was like, <laughs> okay, that's the job for me. <laughs> and from then on, and Sandra Day O'Connor, I'm just going to show my age, was made a Supreme Court justice, I believe, when I was in high school. And that had a big impact on me at the time because, you know, prior to that, I don't think a lot of women thought they really had, not that I want to be a Supreme Court justice, but they thought they really had a future in the law. And, and that I remember that to this day when that happened, what a big thing that was. And I just told everyone that I'm 85 years old. But that's <laughs> so did judicial office ever cross your mind? Was that something you might have been interested in in the past? You know, I certainly have a lot of front tour judges that I admire what they do. And it's, it's a great job. I like to be a fighter. (laughs) I like to be an advocate and obviously can't do that as a judge. So I think I would find it too quiet probably for my taste, uh, even at the, at the district court or trial court level. But there's no question that more and more we need great judges and it's probably the single, at least in my job, in my world is the single most important job anyone can have because I think the only legal philosophy that ultimately works for me is legal realism. Okay. <laughs> Which means, you know, often how a case, both the pace of the case, how it flows, and ultimately what the result will be is going to be based on not only the philosophy, but the life experiences and understanding of the judge. And that's just crucial. So the more people who are people of high character and great experience to become judges, all the better. Totally agree with you. I totally agree. So looking at your career as a lawyer, which has been remarkable, what would you say is your superpower or something that is really unique to Robbie Kaplan? Obviously, we know about how hard you work on these cases and how much you prepare and, of course, your tactical brilliance. But is there something that you would sort of regard as something that is a little different? So I have a son who's now 16, but when he was little, one of his favorite books that I used to read to on hundreds, if not thousands of times, was called Dog with a Bone. (laughs) And I think The reason I like that book so much probably said something about me, which is as a lawyer, I really am kind of a dog with a boat. I do not (laughs) give up as a lawyer. And I like to say our firm doesn't give up. Mm -hmm. And if I don't succeed on something the first time for a client, I succeed the second or third time. And I think it's that stubbornness, maybe. I mean, 
stubbornness isn't usually considered a good quality, but <laughs> it's that ability to keep on fighting our resilience, I think, that our firm has and the lawyers that I work with have. That is our number one quality. And then I think I'd say second, creativity. I'm the least creative human being on the planet. I can't draw. My son goes crazy if I try to sit in the car because I'm so <laughs> off chair. I could never do creative writing. Pottery, my pottery teacher basically kicked me out of class in high school because he asked me why every single pot I made looked like a bong. And I wasn't even <laughs> trying to make a bong. I was like, I don't know what you mean. So I have no artistic talent, but I think to the extent I have any creativity at all, I apply it to cases in the law and how to achieve what we want to achieve for our clients in a creative and often unusual ways. So that actually makes me think of, of course, the Charlottesville case and your case against the individuals who caused such violence there and how you used a very old statute that was really designed to be deployed against the Klan to go after these white supremacists, which was really quite brilliant and I think creative. How did that theory come to you? So, I mean, like everything, we saw what happened in Charlottesville. We knew something had to be done about it. We were very concerned. My firm was, had like four people at this time, maybe four lawyers. We were very concerned that the Department of Justice, then headed by Jeff Sessions, was not going to do anything, which we turned out to be right about. And pretty quickly after Charlottesville happened, someone got into the Discord servers that the organizers used and leaked a whole bunch of messages, which made it very clear that this was a conspiracy. And so the question for us is, okay, great. We have the facts. We had clients. We went down there. But what law do we use? And there's not a lot, frankly, of current law to deal with this, in part because no one, I hope we're not going back to those times, but at least in my lifetime up to now, no one ever thought this was a huge problem. <laughs> no one ever thought that we would have private conspiracies that were racially motivated, that engaged, planned and promoted and engaged in violence. That may be changing, and that's one of the most disturbing things about our country right now, but that's generally been true for, for decades and decades. And so we had to go back and look for a statute called the KKK Act of 1871, which was passed to do exactly what it says it was passed to do, which was to try to curb the growth of the then, you know, new Ku Klux Klan in the Deep South. Arguably, it didn't have great success in that regard, but there were cases in the 1870s when it was passed trying to kind of curtail or slow or stop the growth of the plant. When you think about what happened in Charlottesville, though, it really is the modern day version of mm -hmm. what that Reconstructionist Congress is trying to deal with. Because back in the 1870s in Alabama, mostly men would don white robes and white hoods and they would meet in the forest and they would plan tragically and horribly a lynching or whatever they were going to do. Today, it's much easier. All you need is a hashtag on Parler or Discord or one of these mm -hmm. kind of dark websites. And it's like whack-a-mole. The minute one of the sites stops hosting these people, another one will, will take over. So all you need is a hashtag. That keeps your anonymity for the most part, unless you self-identify in your hashtag. And you don't have to go to the woods. Mm -hmm. Like literally, the guys who organized Charlottesville and were seeing this today and more recently are from all over the country. And they all were able to plan nationwide and, frankly, even internationally. When we felt the Charlottesville case, it's going to show how naive I was. I thought it was a terrible one-off. And it was a terrible thing that happened, but it was a one-off. And we needed to bring the case so that it would never happen again. How wrong in humility, I have to say, I was. 
Because not only was it not enough, it was really a harbinger. It was kind of a roadmap for a lot of what has happened since then. And even this guy who attacked uh, Nancy Pelosi's husband, while you know there weren't 20 guys who went to the house, everything that he believed and everything that he was motivated to do was based on these same kind of dark web, white supremacist, violent channels, which again, if you're interested or if you're a lonely guy who's looking for a community, it's pretty easy for you to get on and kind of get indoctrinated in their thinking. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I know this is perhaps a little bit far afield from your work as a lawyer, but maybe just even as a concerned citizen, how do we deal with this problem? How do we get ourselves out of this rut? It seems that it's just getting worse and worse. Yeah, I wish I knew. I mean, it's something I think and worry about all the time. We obviously, and I'm as committed as anyone to the First Amendment, we obviously have a right to free speech in our country and we should have a right. But it may be both with the Computer Decency Act and with the case law that the developed case law in the First Amendment context maybe does not make sense in the modern day. In the other, in the sense is, for example, under Brandenburg, when you're doing something that wreaks havoc in a crowded theater, may be translatable to things that people do online today in the dark web almost every single day. And whether our standards need to change to deal with that, I think it's a very, very serious question. Of course, whether or not this Supreme Court is currently constituted is open to hearing any of those arguments, I don't know. Well, that's very interesting, I wonder, because there are definitely some conservatives out there who want to revisit First Amendment doctrine as well. I wonder if this might be some weird area where maybe you agree with some of them. Look, so we obviously have separation of church and state, though I'm, I'm a religious Jew. And Judaism, going all the way back to the destruction of the Second Temple in 62 AD or 66 AD, has been obsessed with speech. And it's obsessed with speech because it understands that a lot of the damage that people can do to other people is through speaking. And if you look at history, there's no question that's true. Now, I'm not saying that we give up our right to free speech. It's embedded in our Constitution for good reason. And it came out of a world where people were severely restricted in what they could think and what they could say. But the link between certain kinds of speech and violence, I think at this point, is, is uncontroversial. And how we deal with that kind of speech that may not, it may not be committing violence, but it is no question prompting and encouraging and invoking other people to commit violence, I think is a very, very serious issue. So let me ask you this then, and again, perhaps I'm going a little bit out of what you usually focus on as a civil rights, public interest, and commercial litigator. But what is your take on what's happening to free speech in U.S. law schools right now? Because there have been speakers who have been shouted down, conservative speakers mainly, but of course, obviously, conservatives have no problem going after free speech in other areas. But what are your thoughts on that? Do you share the concern that certain speakers might come to law schools and inflict what activists call harm on students? So what I know about this, David, I mostly know from following your column. (laughs) <laughs> so, so that's basically the limit of my knowledge because I've been super busy lately. Yes. <laughs> but I have the general gist because you're a good journalist and I follow what you write. Look, people have a right to protest. They should, but they don't have a right to protest in a way that stops other people from speaking. And there is no question that on both sides in our country right now, both, the, in fact, both the radical left and the radical right are looking more and more similar every day, mm-hmm. which is petrifying because that's what it looked like in Germany in the 30s. So it's petrifying. 
but people both on the radical right and the radical left who want to deprive other people of the ability to speak is, is not acceptable. Um, it, it, it's not what the founders meant. It's, it's speech and debate and discourse, even going back to Jewish law, is something to be highly encouraged. And I think we all make the situation worse, honestly, when we hate to use expression, but we cancel other people from expressing their views. Just because you don't agree with someone, I'm sure you and I don't agree on everything. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't discuss it yep. and debate it and argue with each other. And it's, it's terribly distressing mm-hmm. because it leads to the kind of breakdown in civil society, I think, that we're seeing today. And that's also incredibly scary. So related very much to these cancel culture controversies, what are your thoughts on the extent to which advocates can or should be held accountable for their clients? So for example, even though you are known or most famous for your civil rights work, your public interest work, you also represent Goldman Sachs, Airbnb, large companies. And there have been some on the left who have sort of taken a sort of purist approach. Oh, well, you know, you represent all these progressive causes, but then you represent all these evil companies and defendants and what have you. So what are your thoughts on that? The extent to which lawyers should be held accountable for the sins of their clients? So I don't think lawyers should ever be held accountable for their sins of their clients. That's what lawyers do. And if lawyers were in any way held accountable for the sins of their clients, then we wouldn't really have a legal profession. The only exceptions that would be when lawyers commit the sins of their <laughs> clients as part of the representation. And that's where, for Trump. me, always is our race where you can't cross the line, right? I think for every lawyer I know, I think weighs these things differently. First of all, let me begin to say, I don't acknowledge for a second that Goldman Sachs or Airbnb oh, or yes, any of our, 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 their clients. I'm playing devil's advocate too. I, I have nothing against them personally. <laughs> are evil or do anything evil or, or anything like that. I think you have to look at differently in the criminal context than the civil context. Criminally, I think my colleagues at Kaplan Hecker would say that everyone is entitled to a defense and that while there may be some criminal defendants that we wouldn't or that they wouldn't want to represent. I think the breadth of who you represent criminally with someone's facing imprisonment is different than civilly. Um, civilly, you know, I think personally, it's a choice. And we at Kaplan Hecker, I could just tell you, think very seriously about these issues. We talk about them among the partners. Um, and we won't take on a client who we feel is somehow contravenes our values in some fundamental way. But that's a choice. I wouldn't judge another lawyer who did that because that's what lawyers, if that makes sense. That makes perfect sense, especially, as you were saying, in the civil context as well. Uh, because, look, they have a wide variety of lawyers they can choose from. And you have clients that you can choose from. And you're very busy. And not everyone is entitled to Roberta Kaplan. So, <laughs> no, I totally get that. Other than Eugene Carroll, who's entitled to <laughs> No, indeed, indeed. And Edie Windsor, who was amazing, of course. I mean, this is kind of a dumb question, but... Is that perhaps the win that you were most proud of in your long career? And if, if that is, then do you have a number two? Charlottesville. I mean, Edie okay. would be first. Charlottesville, number two. Charlottesville, you know, unfortunately or fortunately, depending how you look on it, the case was not covered that much. And, and the reasons why is there were two highly racially motivated criminal trials going on at the same time. There was the one in Wisconsin and there was one, I think it was in South North Carolina. I can't remember. South Carolina. And... And they were both in state court, so they were televised. Yes. So for the press, it was very easy to cover both those cases rather than cover Charlottesville, which was no cameras in the courtroom because we're in federal court, um, very severe restrictions for COVID and other things about access to the courtroom. And, 
you know, I guess sadly in certain ways, although the record we made, it wasn't really the focus of, of people's attention, I think, the way it should have been. But because of that, I don't think people realize how incredibly difficult okay. it was. We were on trial for about four weeks. We had about a week of jury selection, so about five weeks total. Two of the defendants were pro se, Richard Spencer and Chris Cantwell. Chris Cantwell was then serving a sentence in federal prison for making violent threats against another white supremacist. I think he threatened to rape and kill his wife. But a week, either before or after that, he made similar violent threats against me, saying something like, when this case is over, we're going to, can I swear on this? Yeah, go for it. (laughs) When this case is over, we're going to have a lot of fucking fun with Robbie Kaplan. And so we were in trial in this kind of closed courtroom. The whole courthouse was closed, by the way. There was no other case going on. For four weeks with these two, with a bunch of defendants, but with two of them who were pro se. And I think Judge Moon, rightly probably, let them get away with almost anything they wanted to do because he was very concerned about an appellate record. And in retrospect, he was probably right. Living through it every day was (laughs) extremely hard. You know, they would just make incredibly outrageous arguments. Chris Cantwell in his closing started screaming and I thought threatening the jury. The marshals would say to me, okay, you know, if Cantwell gets closer to you, we're going to stay closer by you in case he tries anything. I mean, it was crazy. And so just as a sheer endurance contest Mm -hmm. and for being able to keep our dignity in the face of a trial where literally every day these guys were talking about how much they love Mein Kampf. Wow. And, you know, I'm just the, the rhetoric was unbelievable. It's something I'm very proud of. And it's not just me, it's our entire team. I don't know how we did it so long, but we somehow managed to do it. And getting the verdict we did was incredible. Yeah, no, absolutely. Congratulations. I mean, I know, again, Karen Don and Levine, yeah. you had a lot of other amazing lawyers involved in that as well, other law firms. But For did sure. you have personal security at some point in addition to the marshals? Yeah. I mean, I, yeah. I can't get into it, but yeah. And so, that made it hard to, we were really kind of trapped in the hotel in a lot of ways for security reasons. So imagine going from this kind of closed in courtroom to being kind of trapped within the hotel for four weeks and thinking about how you're going to cross-examine someone about Mein Kampf or put on Deborah huh. Lipstadt to talk about why these guys are obsessed with the Holocaust. It was something for sure. Wow. Yeah, no, but great victory, huge verdict and a real blow against white supremacists and others who would harm the country. On a happier note, that Taplin Hecker and Fink celebrated its fifth anniversary. I guess this was over the summer. Yeah, July 1. Congratulations. Thank Uh, you. What are you most proud of about the firm so far? So, you know, when we set out to create this firm, we had certain specific core values about, one, doing work in the public interest together with commercial work and white-collar work. Two, having almost a paramount respect for maintaining our culture and making sure that we all liked each other and were friends and had the same values. And three, I think as non-hierarchical as you can possibly be in the sense that we hire, I think we now have 10% of our lawyers or Supreme Court clerks. That's kind of insane. Like wow. I couldn't get a job with me anymore. I think. <laughs> but because we bring in such brilliant people, making sure that we listen to their ideas, you know, from day one. And I think what I'm most proud of is that we kept to that. Mm-hmm. We really have to this day kept to that. And our greatest challenge, frankly, is not getting 
so large that we lose it. That's frankly the thing that we worry about the most right now. I think there's a number of partners where the partners don't know each other well enough to keep that sense of camaraderie and culture. And that's what we face every day. We're not there yet, for sure. But that's what we think about a lot. So right now, the firm, I think, has around 60 lawyers, maybe 10 partners or so. I think we're about, well, with Marshall Levy, we're maybe about 13 or 14 partners. Oh, okay, okay. And I think the limit for me, based on my experience, is about 25. Once you get to more than 25, it's hard for everyone to kind of be friends the same way we are now. So we have some room to grow. And what about total lawyers? Right now you're around 60-ish, maybe? Yeah. You know, again, we don't know, but I think everyone agrees that at 125, we pretty much be at our limits. Again, we're nowhere near that now, but that's kind of what people have in mind. And I'm not sure all of us want to even get that big. Okay. Uh, We also, I think, speaking honestly for the partners, we're not into this idea of having a lot of like satellite offices. That was my next question. Right, yeah. (laughs) So we have New York, which is, you know, kind of the main office. And then we have DC and I don't anticipate us expanding anywhere else. I think before COVID, we might have thought about an office in California, but I think one of the few good things about COVID, very few good things, is that you see that you can practice, a, you know, across state lines in a much easier way than anyone ever anticipated. Yeah. So I can't imagine doing that anytime in the near future. Yeah, I know. I totally agree with you. I don't think it's quite as imperative. And in this day and age of uh, remote work, it is much easier. Let me ask you this question, because people have asked me about it, and I'm genuinely curious for the answer. So Kaplan, Hecker, and Fink, you do tons of public interest work. You do tons of pro bono work. And then on the other hand, you still pay above the big law salary scale for associates. So something here is not computing. How do you do it? And again, maybe I'm being too nosy, but I mean, are you content to just make like, you know, a couple million rather than like many millions like maybe you did at Paul Weiss? Like, what's the secret here? <laughs> so I'm not going to get into any numbers, obviously. <laughs> no, of course, of But let me put it this way. I was in our first year, probably. I have not had to sacrifice anything financially Wow. at Kaplan, Hacker, and Fink. Wow. (laughs) And I think for me and almost all the partners, we are doing appreciably better than we would have at big firms. What's our secret sauce? I think for one thing, we are very, very efficient. Even though our fees aren't significantly lower than big firms, Our bills tend to be because we don't have to have four levels of people working on something. The work product that we get from our associates is usually excellent and doesn't take as much work and then it might at a big firm. Two, we're very creative about fee arrangements. Okay. Which is also not at least a big firm thing in the past. It may be more so now. My managing partner, Julie Fink, was a client at Pfizer for years before she came here. So she really understood this, but even before I did. And we're, we're very creative about success fees or contingency fees or flat fees in ways that I think is hard at big firms. Mm-hmm. But suffice it to say, we're doing not wood because I don't want to take soon. I'm lacking wood right now. <laughs> we're doing okay. And we're pleased to be able to pay our associates and our staff the way we do. And some of it is, I have to know, some of it is we're not, money isn't the most paramount thing. So no one comes to Kaplan Hecker thinking I want to earn as much as a hedge fund person or an investment banker or something like our tech guy, you know, we do very well and no one is, you know, any financial distress, but amounts of dollar per share per partner is not our number one goal. No, and that makes perfect sense. And I'm curious, you mentioned contingency fee arrangements. Do you do a significant amount of 
plaintiff side that work that helps generate unusually high revenue per lawyer, perhaps? So we've done some. We're certainly interested in doing more. We probably get, I don't know, I'd have to look at the numbers. Somewhere between six and a dozen people calling a week. We probably turn down, I think the numbers have got to be 90, upwards of 95% of those. Mm-hmm. But the ones we take on can tend to be pretty profitable. So yeah, so that okay. certainly helps the bottom line. And then another thing I've heard about the firm is some of your public interest work is also paid work, right? Like it's not just entirely pro bono. Yeah, so some of it is funded. It's funded at a lower rate. So we okay. have like a public interest rate that we use. It's about half our regular rates. Okay. Um, and so we do a number of cases like that. A lot of the election works cases that Joshua Vance does are funded in that way, et cetera. Okay. So one last question before we go to my little lightning round of final questions. And again, you know, maybe this is like a, a delicate subject, but some people in the law firm world say you're a tough boss. Do you consider yourself a tough boss? So let me tell you a story. So <laughs> Paul Weiss had upward reviews. I don't remember when they started, but at some point when I was a partner, they started off with reviews. And my upward reviews, I would always have, and, and this is not, I'm not proud of this, but I would have always one or two associates, maybe at a time that I didn't work so well with. And it always turned out that of the people who did the reviews, those would be the people who would turn on the reviews. And so my upper reviews were not great. And then I did the Windsor case. And all of a sudden, my upper reviews were stellar. <laughs> and I remember my wife saying to me, well, I don't understand because I don't think I changed as a boss. I think what changed is the way people perceive me as a boss. Mm, okay. So I don't know. You know, those were a long time ago. And I can't speak to it. And I, I know I was under a lot of stress as a young partner of Paul Weiss. But I don't think anyone today, I mean, you can ask them yourselves, but have a problem with me as a boss. I certainly, and we all do have high standards. Yes. We operate on very demanding situations and our clients justifiably expect a lot for us. But I don't think anyone in the Charlottesville case or in Eugene or in any of the paying matter, Airbnb, Uber would say, I mean, if by tough, you mean I have high standards? Yes. By, I think, mentoring people and giving people opportunities to take depositions and to examine people at trial. We were the only firm in Charlottesville that had associates examining witnesses at trial. Wow. No, that's remarkable. And need I say more? <laughs> I guess that speaks for itself. No, totally, totally. So here are my standard final questions, which are standard for all the lawyer guests. And my first is, what do you like the least about the law? And this can either be the practice of law or law is that sort of abstract system that rules over us all. I think what I like the least is the tendency of lawyers and judges at times to fail to see that behind all this case law and behind all this precedent and statutory language are real people (laughs) and that each case affects a real live person. And I think it's hard to keep those things balanced in your head, but I think good lawyers and good judges need to. And I sometimes find it very frustrating when people take things to such a level of abstraction that they fail to see the kind of humanity in what we do. And I think that is one of your talents as a lawyer, just bringing out the humanity of your clients, whether it's Edie Windsor or Heather Hare or E. Jean Carroll, I think your storytelling about these actual, very real flesh and blood people is something that just stands out about your practice. 
Well, thank you. Because I would like someone to say that about me. So I'm very pleased that you have that. <laughs> That's something we really care about a lot again. So my second question is, and this will be interesting because I know that from a young age, you, I think you have a line in your book about how at age 10 or 12, you're plotting out your legal career. What would you be if you were not a lawyer? So believe it or not, because it's pretty timely today, I thought seriously about becoming a Russian historian. Ah, that was your undergrad major. Yeah, I was a Russian history lit major. And I spent, I think it was like the single, probably biggest influence on who I became as I spent the spring semester of my junior year in Moscow in what was then the Soviet Union, but Glasnost had been announced. So it was the kind of beginning of change, although change it didn't last very long. And I think that semester, I was fluent in Russian then, and, and that semester and watching and kind of living in what was then a totalitarian regime in, in a lot of ways still, we were bugged and all kinds of things, mm-hmm. just had a huge impact on the way I see the world. And maybe made me a good lawyer because I always expect the worst. <laughs> which is a good thing as a lawyer in a lot of ways, because you want to be planning and anticipating for all contingencies. I think I ultimately realized that there's not a lot, if any, kind of happy years in Russian history, mm-hmm. sadly continuing to today. So that if I became a Russian historian, it was going to be a pretty depressing prospect. <laughs> but I originally went to law school just thinking, okay, this will be a way to figure out what else I want to do in my life. And then I fell in love with it. I'd kind of forgotten about what I was thinking as a 10-year-old and getting paid to talk. (laughs) Um, I flirted with the idea of going to the CIA. Oh, okay. I started taking Russian because that was a big period of kind of global crisis between the Soviet Union and the United States. My professor at Harvard was Richard Pipes, who came up with the phrase, the evil empire. And I thought about it. But at that time, I don't think it would have been very easy for someone who was, I wasn't out as gay, but I certainly had concerns that I was gay and or lesbian. And I was smart enough to know that that probably wouldn't mix too well with going into either the NSA or CIA. So I didn't do it. Mm-hmm. Probably the best for me in a whole lot of this. <laughs> and I think certainly history has benefited from your choice to become a lawyer. <laughs> so my third question is, how much sleep do you get each night? Believe it or not, I feel like the high end of the people you talk to, I get 70 hours a night. Wow. I've never been... Someone who's functioned well with very little sleep. I remember my freshman year in college, some of my friends and I decided as an experiment that we were going to stay up all night and then write some essay that was required for some kind of writing class we had to take, taking a lot of no-dos. <laughs> like only a freshman in college would be stupid enough to do something like that. But suffice it to say, I had to ask for an extension of the due date for the essay. <laughs> I did not concede. And I really, you know, when I'm on trial, I sleep obviously a lot less, but even then I'll go to bed at, you know, midnight and wake up at four or five in the morning. I still need to sleep every night. I'm glad to hear that. I always love talking to successful people and also working parents. You have a son. I mean, I think it's great when people can, look, I know work-life balance may be sort of an illusion or or maybe maybe a little much to ask, but, you know, I'm glad to hear that you can get a decent amount of sleep. (laughs) And I have migraines. Ever since I was 12, mm. I, I suffer from migraines. And if you sleep too little, it will bring on migraines. I remember once <laughs> when I was working from Chief Judge K, I had slept enough or I don't know what had happened, but she came into my office and I was curled up under my desk in like the fetal position because I had a migraine. Uh-huh. And I'll never forget, she thought I would die. She's like, <laughs> what is going on? So when you, when you suffer from something like that, I'm very careful about doing things that won't bring out a migraine and, and lack of sleep or even too much sleep, both sides, mm. uh, can cause migraines. 
And my final question, any final words of wisdom for listeners who look at your life and career and say, I want to be Robbie Kaplan? Well, I'm not sure anyone should say that because we all have <laughs> we all have our own lives and you shouldn't want my life any more than anyone should want anyone else's. I would say, one, stick to your guts. Like the single greatest lesson I've learned as a lawyer is that trust your own guts because they often tell you the right thing. And if there's a lot of distractions that you may listen to or follow, instead of following your own inner kind of voice, and that's really important to hear your own inner voice. And two, and I kind of alluded to this earlier, your ability to function as a lawyer is based on your integrity. And you should never, ever, no matter what the fee, what the pressure, what the circumstances, and again, we're seeing this today, unfortunately, never do anything for a client that in any way compromises your integrity. I learned that at Paul Weiss. I learned it from my mentor, Paul Weiss, Marty London, and a bunch of others. And it's the single most important thing I think you need to know as a lawyer. Well said. Well, thank you so much, Robbie, for joining me. I am so grateful for your time and your insight. And I know my listeners will appreciate it as well. It's a pleasure. Thanks, Robbie. Bye. Thanks again to Robbie for joining me. She's had such a remarkable life and legal career, and it was wonderful to hear about her landmark wins and what she's working on today. If you haven't already read it, I highly recommend her memoir, Then Comes Marriage. As always, thanks to Tommy Harron, my sound engineer here at Original Jurisdiction. And thanks to you, my listeners and readers, for tuning in. If you'd like to connect with me, you can email me at davidlatt at substack.com. And you can find me on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn at David Latt, and on Instagram at David Benjamin Latt. If you enjoyed today's episode, please rate, review, and subscribe to Original Jurisdiction. Since this podcast is new, please help spread the word by telling your friends. And if you don't already, please subscribe to the Original Jurisdiction newsletter over at davidlatt.substack.com. This podcast is free, as is most of the newsletter content, but it is made possible by paid subscriptions to the newsletter. The next episode of the Original Jurisdiction podcast will appear two weeks from now, on Wednesday, November 16th. Until then, may your thinking be original and your jurisdiction free of defects.